Hey, before I start, I just want to say thank you to Pastor Brent for giving me the opportunity to speak today. Can we give it up for our pastor? Yeah. Let me just tell you, it is such an honor and a privilege to preach before you today, and I am so blessed to be able to call one family my church home. Amen. Yeah. Now I'm going to start off with a simple question. Has anyone ever had a bad day? Bad couple days? Bad week? Maybe even a bad year? I have a friend who a few months back, he was having a string of just some really bad days. I mean, life was beating him down. Started off with an ear infection. And I know what you're thinking, but this wasn't a typical ear infection. He couldn't hear out of one of his ears for two whole weeks. Just no sound was coming in. Till one morning, he wakes up, tries to pop his ears like he did every morning, and it finally worked. He could hear again. He's thinking it's a great day. Until later that afternoon, he's playing spike ball. He jumps up, lands on his foot funny, falls over, and breaks his leg. He's in pain. He has to go to the urgent care. It's this whole thing. It's a big deal. It is bad. And you may be thinking, there's no way this gets any worse. But it does. Because two weeks later, he's back in the urgent care getting a steroid shot because he was just diagnosed with pneumonia. And the person that greeted him at the urgent care the second time for the pneumonia was the same person that greeted him the first time for the broken leg. I mean, she must have just been thinking, like, wow, this kid is really going through it right now. I mean, life is just beating him down. Life is giving him a lot of lemons, and he can't make any lemonade. And we, we laugh looking back on this, but the truth is sometimes a bad day is just a bad day. Sometimes life just gets hard. Sometimes we just get hit with tragedy after tragedy, loss after loss, pain after pain. Sometimes it feels like life is just sucking the hope right out of you. Does anybody know this feeling? Has anyone ever been hit so hard so many times by life that you just don't know how much more that you can take? I'm sure we've all been here before. And if we have, then you'll know it's in these moments that you start to ask life's hard questions. Questions like, what is the meaning to all of this? Is there hope at the end? Do I have a purpose? What am I here for? But as we'll see today, it's in these moments that we're being beaten down, these moments that we are suffering, that God provides an answer to the questions, that God provides us a calling in the chaos. Now, about 3,000 years ago, somebody else was facing a series of difficulties. Somebody else was being beaten down by life. The book of Judges tells us the story of a man named Gideon, who lived at around 1400 BC when Israel had just returned to the promised land. And for seven years, Israel starts to become oppressed by a distant people called the Midianites. Each time Israel would go out to harvest their food, Midian would come on down, steal everything that they had worked for, destroy their fields, slaughter their animals, leaving Israel starving and impoverished. And a culture of fear starts to rise up in Israel. They start to retreat, build their houses in caves and mountain clefts. They start to feel hopeless. They start to feel afraid. They start to feel just like you and me in those moments when life is beating us down. This is where we meet Gideon. Now today we're going to be in the book of Judges. Judges chapter 6 verse 11. If we could get that up on the screen. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak, an oak tree, an oak tree in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abyssalite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. 
So where we meet Gideon, he's threshing wheat, he's beating wheat to break the grain from the plant, but he's doing it in a wine press. Now, I don't know how much you know about ancient Israelite agriculture, but a wine press is no place to thresh wheat. You're supposed to thresh wheat outside on the threshing floor, but he's doing it in this little hole in the ground, probably crouched something like this, beating the wheat. Why? Because he's afraid. Because he's scared of the Midianites, who probably aren't even there at that moment. Where we meet Gideon, where God meets Gideon, he is being a coward. Let's keep reading. Verse 12. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Someone say, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied. But if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. Gideon looks back at God and says, God, if you are with me, then why don't I see it? God, why do I feel abandoned? Why is this happening? The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, again Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my family. So God calls Gideon to go and save his people and Gideon looks back at God and says, God, what do you see in me? Look at me, I'm so weak, I'm so young, I'm so scared. God, how will I save my people? How will I do it, God? The Lord answered, I will be with you. I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Let's bow our heads. Father God, thank you for every person in this room. Thank you for bringing us together to, to be at the right, right place at the right time. God, I pray someone today hears exactly what they need to hear. They are comforted if they need comforting. They are convicted if they need convicting. Their heart is just turned towards you by the hearing of your word. God, I pray that I speak nothing but your word today, nothing but your truth today, nothing but your goodness, mercy, and love, that everything that I desire, I want, I know, takes a seat aside, and the Holy Spirit just works today. Jesus, this is all about you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, now about two years ago, I felt a calling in my life, the voice of God calling me into vocational ministry, a call to ministry. And you may think that this happened when everything in my life was going perfect, everything was just going great, but that isn't the case. In fact, I was called during one of the darkest, if not the darkest times of my life, a time when I was depressed, anxious, and hopeless. A time when I was heartbroken and isolated away from everyone that I had loved. A time when I was struggling in school and in sports, things that I had used to medicate and rely on. God called me at a time when I was empty and alone. And when we look at Gideon today, this is exactly how he feels when God calls him. Verse 13, Gideon says to God, Pardon me, my Lord, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. 
He says, God, I heard my ancestors say all these great things, all these wonders that you did, but why did these wonders stop with me? Why am I the one who was abandoned, God? Let's pause right here. Has anyone ever said something like this to God before? Something like, I've heard all of these Christians say that Jesus loves me, but if Jesus really loves me, then why did I watch that family member die? If Jesus really loves me, why did my dad or my mom walk out when I was just so young? Why is my marriage on the rocks? Why am I shaking with anxiety? Why can't I pay my bills? If Jesus really loves me, then it sure doesn't feel like it. Let me just tell you, if you've ever said anything like that, that is completely okay. You know, it's okay to not be okay sometimes. I feel like for many, negative emotions have become stigmatized in some Christian circles. That mental health has become this taboo thing that we don't want to talk about, that we just brush aside. Maybe you've experienced a church where you can't be sad, you can't be down, heaven forbid, you can't be angry with God. Maybe you've experienced a version of Christianity that tells you you got to throw on a mask with a fake smile, walk in the doors, be like, hey, how's it going? But in reality, everything in your life is falling apart behind you. But that's not how it's supposed to be. Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. You know, here at One Family, we want you to come in those doors as you are, and we will point you to the one who can give you rest. Here at One Family, it's okay to come to him with your hurt, with your negative emotions, with your anger. Hear that? It's okay to be angry with God. He can take it. It's okay to look up to the sky and say, God, do you even care? It's exactly what the disciples said when a storm was underway. Their boat started to take on water. They look over at Jesus, who was asleep on his pillow, and they said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? God, don't you care if I perish? God, don't you care that I feel this way? God, are you asleep? Where are you? It's okay to say all of these things. It's okay to feel this way. Gideon feels that way, and that is okay. But what's more important is what God says. And in verse 12, God says, the Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. If you're taking notes, write this down. This means God's faithfulness is not dependent on your feelings. God's faithfulness to you has nothing to do with how you feel. Even though Gideon feels like he is abandoned, God still says the Lord is with you. And even when you are saying, God, why is this happening? God, why am I the one who is abandoned? God, where are you? God is saying the Lord is with you. I am right here walking with you hand in hand, ordering your steps, working when you don't see it, so that even when your life is utterly devoid of anything good, the Lord is still with you. God is faithful. Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. That's whether you feel high or low, up or down, happy or sad, angry, depressed, confused, anxious, defeated, or alone. God is the same amount of faithful. I love the way David puts it in Psalm 139. He says, if I ascend to the heavens, surely you are there. But even when I make my bed in the depths of hell, surely you are there. No matter who you are, what you've done, or what you are feeling, you cannot outrun God's presence. 
You cannot outrun God's faithfulness to you. And no matter what you are feeling, that doesn't change the historical fact that Jesus Christ came down from heaven, died on a cross, and three days later rose up from the grave. And that doesn't change the smile that's on God's face as he looks down on you because of how much love he has for his child. Let's look back into the word. Verse 15. This is Gideon responding to God's calling to go and defeat the Midianites. He says, Pardon me, my Lord, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. What's happening here is Gideon is pointing out all his weaknesses, his flaws, his failures to God. He's saying, God, these are all the reasons why I can't save my people. But in verse 12, God calls Gideon a mighty warrior. So where Gideon sees a weakness, God sees a warrior. Where you look at yourself and see a weakness, see a failure, see flaw after flaw, see shame after shame, God sees a mighty warrior. Again, if we're taking notes, this means your identity is not dependent on your insufficiency. Your identity has nothing to do with your insufficiency. Now, Gideon was truly weak and fearful. He was. I don't know about y'all, but I am no mighty warrior in and of myself, on my own terms, by my own strength. Gideon was a mighty warrior because God said so. Because God was the one who defined his life. Gideon didn't define his own life. God did. If Gideon defined his own life, then he is the weak young coward who threshes wheat in the wine press. But God had the final say. His identity was in God. So then identity isn't about who you are, it's about whose you are. Your identity isn't who you are, it's whose you are. It's who you belong to. Jesus makes this point in the parable of the prodigal son, which if you don't know goes like this. A man has two sons, the youngest of which comes up to him and says, Father, give me my inheritance. So he takes the money that his father gives him goes off to a distant country and squanders it all in reckless living. He just ruins it all. Hits rock bottom. In fact, it gets so bad that he starts working in a pigsty, feeding these pigs, wishing that he could afford what the pigs were eating, but he can't even have that. Then he realizes the servants, the slaves in his father's house are treated better than he is. So he decides he's going to go back to his father and say, Dad, I messed up. I messed up bad. In fact, I messed up so bad, I'm no, worthy, no longer worthy to be called your son. But please, Dad, let me come back as your servant. Come back as your slave. But when the father saw his son in the distance, he came running to him, embraced him with a hug, clothed him in a fine robe, slaughtered the fattened calf and threw a party. Why? Because in Luke chapter 15, verse 24, the father says, For this son, for this son, someone say son. This son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The prodigal wanted to come back a slave, but his father said, no, you are my son. His mistakes didn't define him. His failures didn't define him. He didn't even define himself. The one he belonged to did. He said, I am a slave. The one he belonged to said, no, you are my son. Now this idea of belonging to someone else, of someone else defining our lives, of belonging to God hits home with the early church. But in 2023 America, 
I mean, this idea is countercultural and to some outright offensive. I mean, what's the theme of every Disney movie? The message. It says, follow your heart. Make yourself happy. You belong to yourself. It's your life, so go and do whatever you want with it. And we, we generally accept these as good statements, as good messages. But when we take a step back and really examine what these messages are saying, we begin to see how horribly burdening they are. I mean, saying make yourself happy is essentially saying be your own God. It's saying God's happiness, God's sufficiency isn't enough for me, so I'm going to go over here and do it my way. I want to do it how I want to do it. I'm going to make myself happy. I'm going to create myself, which means that you are now responsible for defining your own existence and providing your life meaning, which sounds great, but on our own, we're utterly unable to do. We can't do it because newsflash, none of us in this room today are God. We are just humans. We were created. Alan Noble An author puts it like this in his book. He says, you are your own and you belong to yourself. This is the fundamental assumption of modern life. And if we are our own, then it's up to us to forge our identities and to make our lives significant. But while that may sound empowering, it turns out to be a crushing responsibility. One that never actually delivers on its promise of a free and fulfilled life but instead leaves us burned out, depressed, anxious, and alone. Look, there's a reason why some of us here today feel that, burned out, depressed, anxious, and alone. There is a reason why when you turn on the news or scroll through social media, just look out your window, you'll see a world that's falling apart. There is a reason why 50% of all marriages today end in divorce. There is a reason why suicide and overdose claimed more lives last year than ever before in history. And the reason why is we live in a culture that tells you to spend your life chasing a feeling that you will never find. And you'll look for that feeling in your job. You'll look for it in your hobbies. You'll look for it in your relationships. You'll look for it in the depths of your own heart. And you won't find it. Because the only place that you can find true contentment is at the foot of the cross. Is by bowing before the feet of our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And because we live in this culture, belonging to Christ becomes so much harder. Even for us Christians. Even for those who have believed for years. Belonging to Christ is something that we all struggle with from time to time. Don't believe me if someone were to ask you the question, who are you? You would respond with your name, and then the phrase, I am a blank. I am a blank. I am a doctor. I am a lawyer. I am a Democrat, a Republican, a husband, a wife. And while these titles may be true, they are always going to be secondary to your first identity. Every time the answer to that question should be, I am a child of God. I am a child of God. But I know... Most of us probably wouldn't answer the question that way. And the reason is, we call ourselves these titles because we are trying to justify our own existence with something outside belonging to God. But that isn't the truth. The truth is you are not your own. You are God's. You belong to God. Let's take a step back, though. Let's backtrack a little bit. Maybe one of those titles, one of those identities you would give yourself is a do it yourself or maybe like a Home Depot dad. We got any do-it-yourselfers here today? <laughs> well, if you're a do-it-yourselfer, you probably know what it's like to put together a piece of store-bought furniture. Has anyone ever put together some store-bought furniture? You know those like 
shelves or desks you'll get from Target that you got to put together yourself. Well, if you're anything like me, what you'll do is you'll get the box, look at the picture, and be like, I got this. This can't be that hard. It's just a piece of furniture, right? And you'll pour out all the pieces on the ground and just start putting things together where you think they go. I mean, looks like this piece of wood belongs here, so I'm going to hammer that in. I think this screw should go here, so let's just screw that together. Oh, this piece of metal looks like it should go there, so let's get the drill and drill that in. And after about 30 minutes or so, you'll take a step back and just be like, this thing is all wrong, man. I mean, I've got drawers that don't fit. I've got screws in the wrong places. I have a piece of furniture that's just falling apart. Then what you'll do is you'll mope back on over to the box, <laughs> reach your hand in, reluctantly pull out a book called The Instructions. <laughs> you'll go back over to the furniture, step by step, start following these instructions, and after no time, you'll have a piece of furniture that is whole, that is perfect. See, living like we belong to ourselves is like trying to put together the furniture without the instructions. We say, I got this. This can't be that hard. It's just life, right? I'm going to go out and do it my way. And after a little while of doing it your own way, you're going to end up with just a life that's falling apart. You'll have relationships that don't fit. You'll have your heart in the wrong places. You'll end up burned out, depressed, anxious, and alone. But when you realize the truth of who you are, that you are not your own, that you belong to God, you'll realize that like the creators of the furniture gave us an instruction book, the creator of the universe gave us an instruction book. And when we study this book, when we know this book, when we obey what this book says, we get a content, whole, and happy life. That is why it is so important that we know our word, that we know what this book says. That way when the world comes at you and says, follow your heart, you'll know that the word says in Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Don't follow your heart, follow God's heart. You'll know that when the world comes at you and says, you belong to yourself, you'll know that the word says in 1 Corinthians, do you not know that you are not your own, that you were bought for a price, the price of blood? And you'll know that when the world comes at you and says, you are weak, you'll know that the word says, you are a mighty warrior. Now Gideon begins to understand his belonging. He begins to understand that God is the one who defines his life. And he starts to trust and obey God. And God starts to build him up, raise him up to go and fight the Midianites. But just before battle, God does something very interesting. He says, Gideon, your army is too big. And if you were to go into battle, you would win. You guys would say, we did it all by ourselves. We didn't need you, God. So God says to Gideon, go out and reduce your army. So Gideon goes out, reduces his army from 32,000 to 300. 300. Before going to fight 135,000 Midianites. Extremely outnumbered in this battle. And there's even more, because Gideon doesn't take any swords or even any weapons to this battle. Instead, their strategy is to surround the camp at night, blow into some trumpets, raise torches, and break glass jars, and trust that God will win them the battle. I mean, this is just a crazy strategy, right? Like, how can this work? There is just no way. We've all heard the phrase, it's like taking a knife to a gunfight. I mean, this is like taking a boombox speaker to a nuclear war. It just can't work. <laughs> How will this work? 
Nevertheless, Judges chapter 7, verse 22 says, When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords, and the army fled. As soon as the Israelites obeyed God, God won them the victory. God turned the Midianites on themselves, and they fled. God won the battle. Gideon clearly didn't win by his own might or by his own strength. He won by the strength of his God. And when you win, which you will win, it won't be by your own strength, won't be by your own might, but by the strength of your God. One last time if we're taking notes. This means your victory is not dependent on your volition. On April 1st, 1942, Desmond Doss, a skinny kid from small town Virginia, became private Desmond Doss when he signed up to serve his country in World War II. But as a Christian, there was a catch. He hung on to the commandment, thou shalt not murder, so much that he wouldn't pick up a gun. He wouldn't touch a weapon because he didn't want to be tempted to take a human life. Because of this, he was heavily bullied during basic training. He would be praying at night and have shoes thrown at him. He was harassed for being weak, skinny, a wimp, a coward. He had officers try to have him discharged, even court-martialed, arrested. He was even told by a fellow soldier, Doss, when we get onto that battlefield, I will be sure that you don't come back alive. Nevertheless, Doss stuck it out. And when it came time for battle, he was sent to Okinawa, Japan, as a combat medic. His battalion was tasked specifically with taking and holding a piece of land called Hacksaw Ridge. Now at Hacksaw Ridge, in order to just get to the battlefield, you had to climb up this perilous 400-foot cliff, up cargo net, very dangerous, very tiring. And when the Americans got to the top of this cliff, they start getting obliterated by the Japanese soldiers. The Japanese had launched a fierce counterattack, and the American soldiers are dying to the left and to the right. It gets so bad that that evening the Americans order an immediate retreat down to safety, down the cliff, and all of them fled. All of the Americans fled, except one man. That evening, Private Desmond Doss disobeyed orders, stayed in the dangers of the battlefield without a weapon, spending the rest of the night going up to wounded soldiers who were left for dead, treating their wounds, carrying them to the edge of the cliff, and lowering them down to safety each time praying, saying, Lord, help me save one more. Help me get one more. By the end of the night, Private Desmond Doss had saved 75 lives that were otherwise left for dead. Not by his own might, not by his own strength, but by the strength of his God. And I'll close with this. This was the wimp, the weakling, the coward, the one that no one expected was the savior of the many. And in the battle for you, for your soul, for your salvation, the one that no one expected was the savior. Instead of coming as a ruthless ruler, he came as a babe born in a manger. Instead of being a mighty king, he was a carpenter. Instead of being this military leader, he came as the suffering servant. The scripture says it like this. He grew up before him like a tender shoot 
and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their face, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now the Jews at the time of Jesus expected the Messiah to be this military ruler, to be a king to free them from Roman occupation. But God said, the battle that I am going to win is so much greater than that. I'm not going to free you from the Romans. I'm going to free the world from the chains of sin. I'm going to free the world from the grave. I'm going to conquer death in the grave once and for all. And I'm not going to do it with this mighty army. I'm not going to do it with 12 legions of angels. I'm going to do it with 39 stripes, three nails, and one cross. It's by his stripes that we are healed. By his nail-pierced hands that we are free. It's through his sacrifice that we have victory. In that moment, the punishment we deserved, the death that we deserved, the debt that we owed was paid in full by the blood of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. In a few moments, we're going to take communion together. And as you take this bread and drink of this cup, I want you to think about what these elements mean. This is the body broken for you. This is the blood poured out for you. Think about what that means for your life as an individual. That because the body was broken and the blood was shed, God's faithfulness was forever cemented into history, unchanged. You have been ransomed from the chains of sin and the depths of hell and adopted into the kingdom of heaven. You can say, I am a child of God. And because the body was broken and the blood was shed, you have victory. You have victory wherever you may stand. You are a mighty warrior in the army of the Lord. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father God, thank you for the blood. Thank you for washing away our sins. Thank you for taking everything that we have done wrong, everything that is weighing us down, that is ailing us, and nailing it to the cross, God that we can be victorious wherever we may stand. God, I pray you help us remember that victory that we have, that victory through your sacrifice, and that it changed everything. God, that it's not something we just experience for a moment on Sunday mornings, but we experience it on Mondays when we wake up, on Tuesdays when we wake up, when we're brushing our teeth on Friday, when we're talking to someone at work on Wednesday, that the love of Jesus follows us wherever we may go, that hearts are truly changed, Lord. In Jesus' name, I ask all of these things. Amen, amen, amen.